Hey guys, welcome to the Health Addict Show. Before we get started though, I wanna cover a couple things. This show is for entertainment purposes only, meaning I am not your doctor. So if you have questions or concerns about your own health, please ask a physician, okay? Get the right information for you. Otherwise, sit back, relax, and enjoy the show. Alright everybody, welcome to the Health Addict Show. I'm your host Tommy J and we got another great episode for you. I think it's a topic that most of us can relate to because either we have it or we know someone who does have it and that is asthma. Before we get started though, I think we need to talk about something that happened in the news and it has to do with the Florida governor and mocking children that are wearing masks behind him before a press conference. Ron DeSantis, the Florida governor, was going to use a photo op and press conference to go over the news, but he had some high school children standing behind him wearing masks. Now, Ron was very belligerent in the way he was talking to these children. He was talking about the COVID theater. He was talking about there's no need and no necessity for wearing masks and said they should take them off. And it wasn't so much just a comment. He was very flustered by the fact that these children were wearing masks. Now, I get the idea. Florida is going down in cases, and the idea that masks actually protect you from COVID really hasn't been shown to protect, but it does decrease the spread of COVID. And that's what we want, right? We want COVID cases to go down, because the less people that get COVID, the less people that spread it, and eventually, hopefully, we get it down just like the flu. But the point of the whole matter is, now, just because COVID isn't as severe for you and me, who isn't immune compromised, doesn't mean that we should be going around maskless and saying that anyone that is wearing a mask is just producing parts to the COVID theater. There's a lot of people that are immunocompromised that shouldn't be catching COVID. It's severely dangerous to them. And this goes well beyond just even COVID. The idea of wearing masks for some reason in the United States is very frowned upon because in other countries, it's a sign of courtesy. You'll notice in a lot of other cultures, people wear masks when they're not feeling very well to decrease their spread of spreading illness. So even though he is correct in a way that just wearing a mask isn't going to protect the person, it will protect you from spreading COVID and spreading to others who could contract it. So sorry, governor. This was not the right choice for you. All right, I'll get off my high horse, but I just hope everyone understands that just because someone's wearing a mask, you shouldn't belittle them. There's many reasons you should wear a mask. And especially with the spread of COVID or other people who are immunocompromised, we shouldn't sit there and belittle someone for wearing a mask. It's a great idea. It's a great platform to get on as far as making sure we don't spread infections even outside of COVID to each other. So... Let's just take our time. Let's think about things before we say it. And let's double check ourselves and make sure maybe this person is re wearing that mask for a reason other even outside of COVID. So, all right, guys, I'll go on my high horse now. And all right, let's talk about asthma. Asthma is one of my favorite subjects to talk about. It's one of the most prevalent things I work with, especially as a respiratory therapist in the field. And there are so many people that suffer from asthma. And obviously, a lot of other things come out of asthma and cause multiple other effects and affects multi-organ systems. So asthma is a great subject to talk about because you don't even have to smoke to have asthma. It's an allergic reaction of the airways in our body. And not just any airway, we're talking about the lower airways. Remember, we are split up into an upper airway system and a lower airway system. Once we get past the trachea and it bifurcates into our bronchioles at the carina, I'm using a lot of terms probably you aren't familiar with, but for the most part, your lungs split at this bifurcation and you're separated into your left and right lung. Now, 
These lower airways are called bronchioles, and they split off into the smaller airways called the bronchioles. And this is where true asthma is actually felt, in these lower airways. So if you have somebody with upper airway wheezing, I'm gonna tell you right now, it's not asthma related. And I'm gonna tell you another thing, bronchodilators aren't gonna help it. Now you might have some other effects because of the big response that you get from these drugs, that flight or fight response, there's something called alpha receptors and beta one and beta two receptors. And these drugs work on alpha one and beta one, which help with the upper airway wheezing you might have from fluid, but lower airways are the only things that really work from bronchodilators. So if you have someone with an upper airway wheeze, you might wanna think about something else for treatment. Now with asthma, you have a cascading effect. You have smooth muscle that's getting irritated. You have the inflammation of the inner bronchial getting inflamed. You have mucus production. And with all these things happening, you have tightening of the airways, you have mucus blocking off your airways, and you have closing off of the airways, which doesn't allow good gas exchange, the whole reason we breathe, to get oxygen in and carbon dioxide out. And once we can't breathe, we know that's not a good thing. We have paleness, cyanosis, we have irritability of the airways. You start coughing and sneezing. You might actually have flank pain in your chest and intercostals and upper costal areas because of the interthoracular muscles trying to work and pull that air in through those tough, really tight, high resistant airways. And let's face it, oxygen is super important. So getting oxygen helps us perform and function properly. And shortness of breath is not something anyone, and I mean anyone, is comfortable with. It is a scary thing. And at this point, sometimes people can't even talk because there's no air movement even happening. Remember, you have to have air movement against your vocal cords to actually talk. And if there's no air movement, pretty much you're having something called dead space happening. And what I mean by dead space is you have perfusion, but no actual ventilation. Those little alveoli, the lung units of our lungs, aren't actually ventilating because no air movement's actually happening. They're tightened off, they're closed, and they're maybe even collapsed depending on how bad this bronchospasm is. So remember from our shunt conversation, when we have a shunt, we have no perfusion, but we do have ventilation. So the lungs are working, but the heart's not getting blood to the lungs properly. And in the other case with our dead space situation, we have a lot of perfusion. The heart's pumping just fine, but the lungs aren't ventilating. We aren't getting oxygen-rich air to the bloodstream. So this is the reverse case of shunt. This is a type of VQ mismatch you'll hear if you get into the medical field. So what are your classic signs right off the gate? If you're looking for someone who's having an asthma exacerbation, it's gonna be tripoding, meaning they're leaning over, trying to get more air as possible. They might have coughing, sneezing. They might have excess mucus production. Their oxygenation might drop. They will definitely complain of shortness of breath. And just like working out, they're gonna start getting sweaty and pale because they're gonna be working so hard just to get every little breath in and out of them. So you're like, oh my gosh, you got this patient that came in and now they can't breathe. What do you do? Well, first thing always you can try is a bronchodilator therapy. This is definitely gonna help them if they are having an asthma attack. You wanna get as many beta adrenergic medications in this person to help relieve that bronchospasm. So your albuterol, Dulnebs, Atrovent, these medications that work very quickly within 15 minutes to get those airways open. And hopefully they've tried their rescue inhaler, but most likely they aren't able to take a big enough deep breath to get the inhaler deep enough for penetration. So those small volume nebulizers are definitely the treatment for this case. And hopefully they improve. Once you start giving nebulizers, hopefully they start improving quite dramatically. You might have to give back-to-back -back treatments. They might take a lot of treatments over a day or two to get them back to normal, but eventually they do at least get past that stage where they feel like they can't get any air. 
However, if you do get to that point where breathing treatments just aren't enough, that oxygen saturation is dropping, they're retaining that CO2, which we can tell from a blood gas, or if you're using N-Tidal, the best next option is non-invasive. This non-invasive ventilation is a type of pressure ventilation that we use to help open up the airways with a patient that has closed off airways. Using this positive expiratory pressure, or a type of PEEP as a peak and expiratory pressure, we help open up the airways, helping ventilation get to the lungs and get oxygen into the heart and into the bloodstream so that we can eventually breathe. Now, here is a classic thing I want you to think about if you're in the medical field. When you get your ABG, you're gonna notice that your patient's CO2, your lactic's higher. You need to make sure that your patient is safe. Non-invasive is a band-aid therapy. If your patient's going to recover, it'll get you to the recovery phase faster. But if your patient is going to crump, they eventually will still crump on non-invasive. It isn't a alter, it doesn't change the outcome most of the time. All it does is it either helps a patient get to a certain point or it helps you get to the point where you need to actually intubate this patient because you're gonna know right away. You're gonna know if this patient's gonna be able to get off the non-invasive or if they're gonna require more positive pressure because your ventilation should change pretty rapidly with this high pressures and the help of the respiratory drive that comes with non-invasive. So if your patient's in that 715 to 725, non-invasive is probably a really good idea to try, at least get you over the hump. If they're less than 715, I don't even recommend like messing around with non-invasive because your patient's already at a very unstable point. Their CO2 is probably really high. Metabolic acidotically, they're probably really high. They're probably making a lot of lactic acid just trying to breathe. So I would just get your patient to a safe point. This is the most important thing. It's about being safe. I know sometimes there's a gamble with maybe non-invasive will work, maybe all these breathing treatments and epinephrine and other things that we give like mag and FOS will get your patient where they need to be. But the point is you want to make sure your patient's safe. Safety is the highest priority to everything. So if you think your patient's crumping and they need that tube, it's probably a good idea to recommend it. All right, so what really causes asthma? Asthma is something that is intrinsic or can be caused by extrinsic factors, but it's mostly the body reacting to itself, almost like an autoimmune disease. There really is no cure for asthma. It's a long-term, long-life condition that most people will suffer with for the rest of their life once they get it, especially if they've had it from childhood. Sometimes childhood asthma goes away, but for the most part, most people have asthma for the rest of their life because they have that reactive airway disease. Now, there's a newer type of treatment that's been going on for the most severe reactive airway disease, and it's called bronchothermoplasty, and it's where they actually burn your airways open so they don't close down. This, however, doesn't really relieve all the symptoms. You're still going to have some shortness of breath and still have a reactive airway disease, but the people that usually get this are chronically sick with asthma, meaning they require massive amount of intervention all the time because they're unable to manage their asthma. And that's the key, right? We want to manage asthma. We want to get to the point where we're managing it. So it's not a very big complication. Now, most of the time, if it's well managed, you only have one or two flare ups a year, meaning you're requiring a lot more of your bronchodilators and steroidal treatments to help keep your asthma at bay. But for the most part, if your asthma is well controlled, you shouldn't really have any interference from it on a regular basis. Now, asthma is ranked on how much you have to use your rescue inhaler for the most part, and how often are you feeling those symptoms. If it's just once or twice a week and you have to hit your inhaler, that's really just a mild case. But if you're having to use it daily or at nighttime, 
more than five times a month at least, then that, that's a moderate case of asthma. And you usually probably need to look at your medications at this point to say, hey, how am I being treated right now for asthma and what could we be doing differently? Now, if you're hitting your inhaler a lot and you're hitting it every day, every night, and now you're requiring it almost every other hour, this is a time where you're starting that severe phase and you need to seek medical attention. Your best device at this point is the peak flow meter. Peak flow meters are one of the asthmatics' best friend because you use this device to see how well your lungs are doing that day. And you should use it every day. I know a lot of people don't like to use it, but it's a good thing to use. To really get a standing on how good your lungs are and if you're uptrending or downtrending, it's the best idea. And for those who don't know what a peak flow meter is, a peak flow meter measures the volume that you're able to expel in a very rapid motion. For people with COPD, asthma, emphysema, chronic bronchitis, cystic fibrosis, bronchiectasis, this is a really hard process to do because the lungs become obstructed as soon as you start expelling really, really fast. So when you do this process, you're able to measure how well your lungs are working. On a good day, you should be able to get a lot of volume. On a bad day, you won't get as much volume. And based on your asthma educator with pulmonary and your doctor, you'll get some levels to see, hey, this is my good day, this is my moderately bad day, and this is my severe day. And on my severe day, I should seek medical attention. So besides the peak flow meter, what do asthmatics usually have? They usually have a rescue inhaler and they usually have nebulizers. Use the inhaler more often. Why? Because the deposition of the inhaler in the drug is more effective than the nebulizer. If you're able to take a big deep breath in, especially if you're using a spacer, spacers are the key to an inhaler for most times, except for a few rare ones, just depending on the way they are used. The inhaler is far more superior for getting the medication into your lungs. Now with an MDI or meter dose inhaler, you want to slow deep breath in and with a DPI, uh, dry powder inhaler, you want a super fast inhale for greater deposition. And finally, we have our nebulizers. If you can't take good deep breaths in, you definitely want to take nice methodical breathing. You don't want to take super fast, quick inhales and exhales because if you start irritating the lungs this way, you're just going to cough out all that medication. So you want to breathe nice and easy and normal and try to get as much of the medication into your lungs as possible because let's face it, nebulizers aren't that effective if you really want to think about it. Only about 20 something percent of the medication actually gets to you and that's because it's all being blown out the front of a nebulizer. Now if you have some of those self-actuating nebulizers, that's definitely better or a vibrating mesh nebulizer versus the air compressed one. The point is though, you're going to lose a lot of medication this way, so nice easy breathing and limiting cough is your best route. So what are some things that can cause an asthmatic to flare up? Well we call these in two separate categories, we have intrinsic and extrinsic factors. Your intrinsic factors are the ones that are caused by us, the things that happen inside the body, and this can be medication related or other chemicals related that we've ingested, certain things like NSAIDs and aspirins have been known to cause asthma inflammation, and also things like pneumonia or colds have known to cause asthma inflammation. People with repeat GERD too, especially that strong acid and aspirationing that's happening with GERD, this could definitely cause a flare up if you have it. So you should always have your GERD treated if you're having a lot of asthma flares. Now, just like your intrinsic, there's a lot of extrinsic factors too. You have pollen, you have other allergic reactants like dander and mold. There's other things like air pollution or st like smoking from tobacco. Sometimes even cold air can do it. 
The important thing though is to recognize what is causing these triggers. Like if it's something like exercise induced asthma, make sure you're taking your inhaler before you exercise. That way you can exercise. Exercise is so important. I never want to recommend someone not to exercise. So figuring out what causes your asthma to flare and how you can pre-treat yourself is the most effective thing you can do. Some other things to recognize too, some people that chronically take their medications, especially albuterol over and over again, you have a pharmacological resistance to it after so many times of taking it. This is why you'll see on the back of your DPIs, the dry powder inhalers like Advair and the other ones that are like Simbacort, these long acting ones, they'll recommend that you get off of them after six months and switch. So it's important to recognize that even though you've been on this medication for a while, you might want to talk to your doctor and see, hey, should I be switching my medications? Now, this isn't the same thing for like your leukotriene modifiers, the mast cell stabilizers, or immunomodulators, but the other medications that you take on a regular basis that have a quick reacting component, like your inhalers, like the long-term acting beta agonists that you take, you need to see and make sure that these are still working effectively for you constantly talk with your doctor. A lot of people just say, hey, it worked before, it should continue to work and never really revisit it and start having increase in asthma attacks. So Jeff, definitely make sure your medication is properly treating your asthma attacks. All right, folks, I hope you learned a lot about asthma today. If you have more questions about asthma treatment and other things we do in the hospital for asthma, don't hesitate to ask. There's a wealth of information everywhere, including on the Asthma Education Board. There's other things like the NBRC if you really want to learn more about asthma and other related respiratory um, websites and other resources you can use, okay? So stay addicted to your health. If you have questions, like I said, go ahead and hit me up with some messages and I'll definitely get back to you. And I hope I'll see you next time, all right? Have a great day.